Well, welcome. We are in this six-week Lenten series called uh, The Health of Your Soul, Conducting a Spiritual Inventory. And uh, it's a six-week Lent series. It's the 46 days of Lent, which is the, you know, the period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. And it's during Lent that um, as we look forward and anticipate the resurrection, we, um, we take our spiritual practices and our spiritual disciplines and we, uh, we employ these and and the idea is that we would become more reflective and more in tune with, um, you know, how our, the condition of our soul. Um, and it's inspired by Psalm 139. We've been reading this as we've been uh, going through the series. But Psalm 139 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So it's an, uh, the idea is that we, uh, we're making ourselves open to God and saying, you know, show me, show me ways that I um, am not walking with you and then lead me in your way. So it's a two-part prayer of, uh, of openness to God. And where we've been in the, in the last four weeks, just a quick little recap here, Jeff kicked us off with the question of, am I thirsty for God? Do I hunger and thirst for God and His righteousness or is it other things that, uh, that make me feel fulfilled. And he suggested a Lenten practice of maybe uh, experimenting with a Lenten fast, if not for the whole 46 days, but maybe just try a week and uh, give something up. And in that sacrifice and the longing for that thing that we've removed from our regular everyday habit, um, it, we can begin to see that God is, uh, is our only true source of sustenance. Then uh, second week was Art, and he asked the question, am I becoming a more loving person? Am I becoming more loving in God's loving way? And Art led us in one of um, his favorite spiritual practices, which is the daily prayer of examine, where at the end of the day, you ask God, you know, in prayer, how did I do today? How, show me where I could have made some changes. And by the way, this is the correct spelling. It's Latin. And uh, the, that Latin meaning has, has an extra added layer to it, which is um, to not just to examine, but to weigh accurately. So coming to God and saying, okay, show me what really transpired in my actions and my thought process today. So rich. Um, then Jeff asked the question, am I quietly centered on God? And he led us in just an example of what it would take to get quiet. The world is so busy. Just get still and talk with God. Have a conversation. Uh, and then lastly, oh, hello. Then lastly, uh, I'm not used to the clicker yet. Lastly, uh, Ben, this last week, um, drew the short straw on the money, uh, the money sermon and asked the question, is it God or is it my possessions and my, uh, and my money that are, are satisfying my soul? And he gave us a suggestion of take that money that you would have spent on like $5 coffees and an extra pair of shoes or golf clubs and take that and, and do something else, else with it, save it, maybe give it away. But my favorite part was he said, Keep a small journal um, and, and ask God, what was it that I was trying to, um, you know, uh, fill in here when I wanted to, wanted to spend in that way? So, so these are the four weeks that we've been in so far. And so each week there's a question, an examining question, and then there is a spiritual practice. And the, the idea is that we can take these practices and not just use them for Lent, but um, incorporate them into our everyday spiritual life and that we can be more resolved to, um, you know, to to be the people that we want to be and actually take a, a step, an action step of faith to say, God, I want to love you more, so I'm going to 
use these disciplines to in, engage with you. It's a good idea, right? So here's my question for you. Has anybody here, so we're in the middle of March, did anybody make a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand if you made a New Year's resolution today. Like three or four. Last service, there was zero. Nobody in here made a reservation. I was like, hmm. So uh, raise your hand if you, if you kept that resolution. Is, are you still doing it? Nice. There's a few. That's pretty good. You know, because typically you make a resolution, you're all inspired, I'm going to do this, and you get one week away, maybe 12 days away, three weeks away, and you're like, wait, why am I doing this? And you completely forget the motivation behind why you made that res- uh, resolution, and then you just, you just stop, of course. Well, I made one New Year's resolution in my entire life, and I actually ended up keeping that resolution, and that uh, became an, a, a part of my, my regular practice. Not because I'm really good at making resolutions, but there was two reasons why. First of all, the nature of the resolution is an everyday thing, so I'm constantly reminded of what that, what that was. But the main reason that I kept this resolution is the way that I was inspired to do it, and it's not a pretty story. So here's what happened. I had this horrible habit of being late all the time. And I... Right now, I'm seeing heads look at the person next to them. And so this is not a late shaming thing. It's just a sermon illustration. So be that as it may. So I had this problem of not just being tardy, like three minutes, five minutes. I was like 15, 20, 25, maybe even 30 minutes late all the time. And part of that was because of the way that I, you know, my family of origin, that's just how we were. In fact, I can remember my dad even saying, we'll get there when we get there. You know, which is a true statement, and you can't argue with that because you will get there when you get there. And um, so that was just kind of my attitude, and I was completely blinded to the fact that that might be irritating or disappointing to anybody. I just thought it was just kind of like because I was chill, and everyone else is uptight. And sometimes, you know, you walk in, and you're a little bit late, and pe- people will look at their watch, and they kind of roll their eyes and look at you, you know. And I just thought it was like this cute, fun thing about me that... You know, it's was, was fun. What? You know, I'll get there when I get there. So this was my attitude, and I just was blinded that anyone might possibly be irritated by that. Well, at the time, so this was January 1st of 1996, and I was 27 years old, and I had a, a, a business, small business. I had a business partner, um, and he and I, his name was Scott, and we were the only, um, we didn't have any employees or anything, but we ran our retail business together. And what it was was it was an architectural salvage uh, store, uh, yard, uh, a building mater- materials yard. So you can imagine we had, you know, a chain link fence and a razor wire on top, and, uh, and we had all these salvaged building materials from the 1800s in the historic district. So like cool old doors and windows, and we'd get these columns from, from front porches that you'd look at them and the grain on them was just like, pristine and, you know, all this old growth redwood. And so we would sell this stuff for an exorbitant amount of, of dollars because people wanted the original thing. And it was a really fun business to, uh, to work. And uh, even though most of the time I just wondered, like, God, when are you going to call me into ministry? Um, but my partner, Scott, he was a builder. He was a contractor. And he was so knowledgeable about how, you know, you could take these old parts of homes and how you could incorporate that into your, into your home. And um, so Scott was the, he was the talent of the outfit. I just was like, you know, answering phones and swiping people's cards and stuff. But it was a job and, uh, and it was a fun business. And Scott and I ran this together. We were open six days a week, uh, closed on Sunday. But because we were both married and had toddlers at home, 
uh, we, uh, we decided that we wanted to take an extra day off per week. So, you know, one day a week, I would take a day off, and Scott would work both the yard and the, uh, and the office, which was a challenge back then because we had to have, have the antenna phone, you know, because your cell phone cost like $2 a minute or whatever. So we had the antenna phone that we'd work out in the yard with. And um, so when S Scott would take his day off, I would take my, uh, um, I would work the yard and, and vice versa. So uh, one day Scott comes to me and he says, so he's getting ready to take his day off the next day. And he goes, listen, so you, you, you always know you're kind of in for something when somebody says, okay, look at me, listen. <laughs> he says, listen, Bruce is coming in tomorrow. He wants to be here and be out the door by 8.05. And Bruce was our best um, customer. He was the guy that, you know, made up for maybe 10, 15% of our annual sales. And so he was the guy that, like, you really go all out and you give him extra stuff and you, you know, you really take care of your best customer. And he says, listen, because <laughs> he knew I had this habit of being late, but I'll get there when I get there. He said, listen, he's going to be here at 8. He wants to be here when the doors open. So all you have to do is load up his stuff, swipe his card, he'll be out of here. No problem, you know, gotcha. You can see where this is going. So the next day, we, we were supposed to open at 8 o'clock. The next day at 8.23, maybe, 8.24, I drive up to our gate to our yard, which is normally, um, you know, a chain link fence, and it's padlocked, and it has a chain on it, but it was open. So I drive in, and I don't see Bruce anywhere, but I see Scott's truck sitting there by the office, and, uh, and I, know what's, I know what's transpired. What probably happened was Bruce, who is this really, you know, got-it-together building contractor, or uh, oxymoron, did, sorry, no offense, this is, he's, he's got his act together, and he was there at probably 7.55, and, you know, because if you're not five minutes early, you are, right? Some of us are really good at that, not me. Um, by the way, I still really struggle with this tardiness thing. In fact, the staff was probably chuckling last service because this very week I was late to staff meeting by about eight minutes. So not perfect at it. But um, so uh, what had happened is I'm sure Bruce had gotten there on time. He'd waited 8 o'clock, 8.05, 10 after. Where's Michael? Pulls out his big giant 1996 brick uh, cell phone. It costs $2 a minute. Calls Scott at home and says, your buddy's not here. Scott jumps in his car against his wife's wishes. She's, you know, frustrated with him that he's leaving on, on his day off, his time with his family to come bail my butt out. He runs down to the store, opens up the gate, checks out Bruce. Bruce is gone by the time I even get there. And here's Scott, and he just is visibly angry. Like, you know, that kind of like, you can almost see him just, and I'm ready for him just to lay into me. And in my mind, I start going through the, you know, already making complaints like, oh, the traffic and, the, and there was a truck and, oh, my, my, you know. But here's what he did. He didn't, he didn't rip into me. He took the time to, in an uh, orderly, systematic way, he listed out for me the ways that this hurtful way, this hurtful habit that I had was not only a poor reflection upon me, but it was a poor reflection now upon him. Our best customer was really frustrated with me, and he's like, by the way, Bruce told me, I don't want to deal with Michael anymore. 
And when you're a 27-year-old dude and like your job is your world and you're trying to build this company and, and your best customer says that, oh, that, I mean, that one hurt. But the worst part of all is he goes, by the way, my wife, she is pissed at you. I'm like, whoa. Now, now, now is what? My eyes were open. All of a sudden, this hurtful thing that I had that I was completely oblivious to and maybe even thought was a little cute had such far-reaching implications. He's like, she's, she's mad at me because I left, you know, I chose to leave her and come down to work, but she's really mad at you. And have you ever had that situation where you, someone comes to you and they say, hey, so-and-so is really frustrated with you, but so-and-so isn't there, and so you don't have the ability to go to them and fix that and like apologize and say all the words that you know that they want to hear? So I had to sit with this weight of, oh man, all these people are frustrated with me just because I can't get my act together. What a loser I am. And, that was, and it wounded me. I mean, there was a, like an emotional wounding. And it was bad enough that I had done this thing, but, but to kind of um, look back in retrospect, like, so wait, so all those times that people were being passive-aggressive and making jokes about me being tardy, they, they, were, actually, they were actually frustrated with me? And it wounded me. I mean, it, it, it cut me. And I decided to make a New Year's resolution, and, and it happened to stick. Um, not because I'm a good resolution maker. It was because of the way I was motivated to make that decision. And it, it illustrated an underlying greater, um, greater issue than my being late all the time. It raised the question, do I grieve over my hurtful ways? Do I grieve over the things that I do that are not just harming myself, but they're harming people around me, and they may even harm others that I'm not even aware of? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 7 said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. The uh, 20th century English um, theologian A.W. Pink said, It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors of faith. And if I, for my mind, I have to kind of translate that to my own language. And so what I'm hearing is, what is the difference between someone who's, who's like, I'm not a person of faith, and someone says, I'm a child of God. The difference is that that child of God is not absent of sin, but should display that they grieve over the things that, the hurtful ways that they have. Do we grieve over our hurtful ways? And we might think, well, wait a minute, but I have that bumper sticker that says that I'm, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven, and so, that's, and so I'm good. I'm kind of, I'm covered. Well, again, true statement, just like we'll get there when we get there. True statement, we aren't perfect. We are forgiven. But if we have to, take, if we have to plaster that on our vehicle to make up for the fact that 
that, you know, we're, we're coming up short. We may as well just be honest. I like this, what this person did. My imperfections are forgiven, so don't waste your time expecting anything from me. Just don't even, I'm, I'm a loser. I, I'm never going to be able to get my act together. I mean, yeah, I believe that Jesus, Jesus covered my sin, and, and I'm saved, and I'm a Christian, but, I, you know, I'm just a sinner. I'm a mess. True statement. But Paul says there is a godly grief that we're called to, that when we have these hurtful ways, God will break our heart over it. But there's a purpose to it. Because we might think, well, what's the point of like just wallowing in grief? Like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> nobody wants to wallow in grief. I mean, nobody wants to spend the time and, and uh, what was the word, examine? Way, um, way accurately. The weight of our hurtful ways? Why would we ever want to do that? That's no fun at all. Why do we want to wallow in that? Well, this morning we're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians, and we're going to see what the backstory was for um, Paul making this statement. So if you have a Bible device, now might be a good time to get it out and turn it to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and save your place there. Where you got, uh, we have these new pew Bibles, hardcover, only the best at Marin Covenant, hardcover, no more paperbacks, um, and that's going to be in your, in your church Bible, it would be page number uh, 1161, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, <clears throat> and, uh, and save your place there, because I'm going to set this up here just for a moment as we look at a closer look at why this godly sorrow brings repentance. So the Apostle Paul brief uh, synopsis of his relationship to the church at Corinth. In 50 AD, the Apostle Paul, on a second missionary journey, he goes to uh, Corinth, city in Greece. He preaches the good news of Christ, and all of these Greco-Roman pagan people, and bear in mind that paganism is the normal, acceptable way, and you know, we think of paganism as this, you know, but for them it was normal. And so they hear the gospel, and they're like, yes, that, yeah, that is what I want. I will follow Jesus. Show me how to do that. So he, he founds the church at, Corinthian, uh, at Corinth. And so these um, two letters that we have in our Bible, 1 and 2 Corinthians, are letters from Paul to that church. And what had happened was he planted the church in 50 AD. A few years later, he comes back around to see how they're doing. And he's a little surprised that they're not, they don't seem to be growing in their faith. In fact, if, if anything, in some ways they seem to be digressing a little bit. Um, they're hanging on to some of their Greco-Roman, pagan, uh, normal, right? Normal things from their lives. And they're not fully leaning into the good news of Jesus, that he not only forgives us, but he gives us a, a new way and a life-giving way and, and all this abundant, you know, fruitful life. And so he's like, guys, and there's, there's trouble with, you know, you know, the church, people in the church are not wanting to follow Paul. Well, he leaves Corinth. He leaves there just really bummed out about how, um, how they're responding to him, how they have these hurtful ways. And he writes in this letter, 1 Corinthians, and he writes in this letter and he has to get kind of rough with them. He has to roll up his sleeves a little bit and he's like, there's a major disconnect here. You're not truly hearing 
the gospel, the real gospel, the life-giving good news of Jesus Christ, and you're just kind of living in your own ways. And he lists out for them, he systematically lays out for them some of the things that they're doing wrong. Here's a picture of Corinth. I forgot that part. <laughs> Actual photo of Corinth. No. Um, that would have been how it looked in his time. But he lists out for them uh, the ways that they, that they are coming up short. And he's like, guys, you're, you're not maturing. You're not growing in your faith. You're just kind of sitting there just being losers. In, you know, oh, I'm saved. I don't even have to try anymore. They were unstable in their leadership. Couldn't tell who was in charge. There was divisions, jealousy, envy, lawsuits. None of the things that people of Christ and the family of God are intended to be known for. In fact, if anything, it was the opposite. There was marital difficulties. There were, there were unhealthy sexual practices in their church family. And Paul's going, okay, I can't believe you're making me have to say this, but you shouldn't have these unhealthy sexual practices. There, there should be no uh, reason why um, a young man would end up sleeping with his mother-in-law. Like, just crazy, or excuse me, his uh, stepmother. And, you know, I, let me list out the things that, that we're doing wrong here not to shame you, but so that you can understand that these things need to be changed. And um, so we're going to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 here in just a minute, but here's the good news. He wrote, he wrote them this letter of 1 Corinthians, but he didn't know how they responded to it. I mean, it was days of serious snail mail. So months go by, and he doesn't know how they've, resp- how they've received this word. Have they said, man, forget, forget you, I'm, we're going to do our own thing. We didn't even want to follow Paul anyway. Or were they going to allow their hearts to be broken and make a change? So he sends Titus, his ministry um, helper, go check up on them. And when Titus comes back to Paul, he's like, you're not going to believe it. They actually heard the rebuke that you gave them, and they've made some changes. So he sits down and he writes the second letter to Corinthians, and that's where we're going to look at right now. So as we read this morning from the Word, uh, we just uh, pause for a moment and remember that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He was the Word made flesh. John chapter 1. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so we believe that when we receive the Word, the Word of God, the, the Bible, we're also receiving Christ unto ourselves. So as we read this morning, we receive Jesus Christ. From uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, here's our text. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, you guys... I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. This is the word of the Lord today. So Paul uh, celebrates, he, he just like he listed out before the, the, the ways that they needed to change, now he's stopping. And Paul, always the consummate uh, pastor, is saying, 
guys, you see what, you see what has, uh, this godly sorrow has produced in you? And he lists that out for them. It's produced in them an earnestness about their faith. So it's not a word we use very often, earnestness, but it's a sincere, intense conviction. The kind of thing that makes you go, oh, I feel that. It's not just a, a mental like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'll, I'll make note of that. But it's like, oh, you got me. I feel that. It's an intense, sincere conviction. Uh, it produces in them an eagerness to clear themselves, an eager to, to have clear consciences before the Lord and with one another. Have you ever been uh, known a, a, just the type of person that you think of as, man, I wish I was godly like that person? And they're almost always the kind of person that's like, hey, I'm sorry I did that little thing. And you're like, what? That was nothing. But they're so eager to be clear with one another and with the Lord, and that's what this godly sorrow produced in the Corinthian church. It produces in them an indignation, a uh, not being content with unfair treatment. And that's unfair treatment of others. No, I'm going to stand up for this person. And, it, and that's, a, that's a motivation that comes from inside because that's, God, that's God, uh, godly sorrow that is making them, uh, leading them to that point. It, it produces an alarm or a fear it's like, what's good about fear? It produces a fear, a realization that, oh my gosh, this stuff is like, this is real. This is serious. This isn't, this isn't just the church club. This is, this is the gospel. This is the kingdom. This is the charge that I've been given as someone who's reaping the benefits of salvation and this life-giving life that Jesus wants to give to me. There's an alarm in that. It's an alert awakeness. Awakeness, I think I just made that word up. Um, it produces in them a longing, a longing, a yearning, and a, a, a concern, an enthusiastic concern for the kingdom, for their church, for the ways of God. It's this inward uh, transformation that happens. And then produces a readiness to see justice done. Do we sometimes look at activists and wonder, why are they so passionate about it? There's probably some kind of a godly sorrow that has happened in them to where they're like, I'm ready to be part of justice being done. So if all of these uh, things that godly sorrow produces in us are, are good, are in fact good grief, good sorrow, then what does the, what does the worldly sorrow do for us? Can we compare those two and say, where am I at? Where am I at in this? Am I exhibiting godly sorrow attributes or am I exhibiting worldly sorrow attributes? The scripture said from uh, chapter uh, 7 that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. All this beautiful stuff. But worldly sorrow over here brings death. It brings death, a deadness inside. And before we look at anything that might uh, tell us why that happens, like let's ask, our, ask ourselves first, am I dead inside? When I come into worship and I see people 
that are just seem to be overjoyed in worshiping God. And my, does it make me realize, well, I don't, I'm, I'm dead inside. Don't expect much from me. I'm, I'm just dead. I'm sorrowful not over all these things that we talked about over here. I'm not sorrow, sorrowful for my broken ways. If anything, I spend most of my time thinking about and dwelling upon my broken ways. Am I dead inside? When we're dead inside, it has us moving in an opposite direction, in an opposite, uh, opposite direction from how God wants to move. If God is calling us over there, sometimes we feel like we're going this way. And there's nothing I can do about that because you know what? I'm just a mess. I'm just, you know what? Don't expect much from me. So the question would be today, are you dead inside? Are you grieving over the things that are leading not to the life that we discussed, but are you grieving things that are leading you in an opposite direction? And that would be a horrible end to this message, but it's not the end of the message. Because this is not a message about sin or guilt or shame. It actually is a message from God about love. Anytime we hear, uh, anytime we read in Scripture about sin and God being frustrated with sin, and it's a love message because God loves us enough to, enough to say, "You, I'm giving you complete freedom." Someone, a young guy, recently said to me, "Freedom is real, man," and I'm like, "You're right. Freedom is real." And as long as we're not hurting ourselves or hurting other people or blaspheming God, we have total freedom. When we look at that, am I hurting myself? Am I hurting others? Those are parameters that a loving God says, I'm going to give you total freedom. Don't hurt yourself and don't hurt others. Paul modeled this for, the, for, Corinthian, uh, for Corinth when he wrote to them. He's like, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul put himself on the line as the leader of their church to come down on them when they, when, when they needed it. And he did it out of love. So again, this is not a message about shame and, and sin. This is a message about a gift from God. And it's not just the gift of salvation. That is a huge gift, but that's just the beginning. Jesus says, I know you're broken. I know you're dead inside. I know you have this worldly grief. And now that you acknowledge that, that's what I wanted for you all along. And I want to give my righteousness to you. I want to impute my righteousness to you. And so Jesus doesn't just cover us with his righteousness, um, but I spent some time in my thesaurus, and my favorite word for this is Christ brands us with his righteousness. He brands it on us. And guess what? Branding hurts. Just thinking like that, you can hear that sound is awful. It hurts, it's painful. 
And we want to skip right over that grief and that sorrow part. But Jesus says, no, I want to brand you with my righteousness, and this is my gift to you. And you know what? The scripture just are, are filled with these examples of Jesus saying, I want to give this my righteousness to you. You don't have to worry about how you just are a lousy, horrible Christian because you're not going to be able to get everything together for yourself. I'm here to do that for you. Now come, come with me. My arms are open wide. You might want to write some of these down if, if this is something that you, uh, that you struggle with. If you want to be reminded that God wants to give us his righteousness. From Philippians chapter 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. God's righteousness comes to us as we reach out and take that action verb, uh, action of faith, and, and reach out for it. Yes, Lord, I want to partner with you in that. Also, from, uh, from Romans chapter 3, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. No one is exempt. The righteousness is there, and, and God's saying, it's, it's right here. From 2 Corinthians earlier uh, in, the, in the text that we read today, Paul said that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become God's righteousness. And this is why we get so excited around Good Friday and, and Easter and just the Holy Week experience. People will say, well, why are you guys so excited about Jesus dying on a cross? It's because we realize that he became sin for us so that we could receive his righteousness that he wants to give us. And that's the transformation that we talk about. God wants to accomplish that in us. And that's good news. It's not a, a, a message of shame. It's a message of love. So how do we, how do we um, make that... Um, the word I'm looking for. How do we make that arrangement with God where we say, yes, I want that. I see now that I'm not going to be able to become righteous. I see now that I'm not going to become a good Christian. How do we do it? And God gives us this other great gift. It's a word that we don't like to talk about. It's called repentance. Confession. And those words have a stigma, but they're actually words of love. Because it's, it's, it's not a, a God saying, come here, come tell me what you've done, look me in the eye. Jesus is saying, ah, oh, you get it now. I'm so glad. Come, let's do this together. So as our spiritual practice for this week, as we move into the last uh, two weeks of Lent coming up. Will you stand with me? And we are going to embark upon a spiritual practice of confession and repentance. Now turn to the person next to you and confess your deepest, darkest... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is all going to be in here. And as the band comes up, we'll, we'll sing and we'll respond. But... Um, I'm going to put my clicker down. I don't know why. When I want to make sure I'm clear with God, for some reason, I put out my hands. So I'd invite you to do that. 
And this is what a confession prayer might look like. And God, I'm coming to you, and I so much want to be clear with you. But I admit that the way that I've been today, I, I don't need anyone to point it out to me. I have not been moving in your way today. The way I talk to my spouse, you know, I know you don't want me to do that. The way I looked at that person when I thought that nobody else was watching, I know that's not the way. I wouldn't want anyone thinking about anyone in my family in that way. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And when I see people who are full of integrity, it kind of makes me bitter because I feel like I'm such a mess and I can't get it together. But I hear from your word that you want to give me your righteousness that I don't deserve. And even as crazy as that sounds, I'm, I got nowhere else to go. I'm ready to do that. So if you'll receive me, Lord, I want to be with you. You pointed out these ways in me. Now change me from the inside. I'm giving you control in that. And lead me in your everlasting, holy, righteous, life-giving way and not in my own destructive ways. And this is my prayer to you. I'm trusting you and putting my faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.